Welcome to this episode of Encounter Cottage Grove, a podcast about the people of a small rural Oregon community of Cottage Grove. We share small town stories that explore the big issues. I'm your co-host, Rosie Foraker. And I'm Josh Vital, And then we have some logistics to share with you. First off, you can email us at encountercg at gmail.com. We really hope to hear from you. All the feedback we have gotten has been extremely helpful. Another way to contact us, to be sure, is to leave an audio message on the Anchor app. You be sure to follow us on Twitter as well, and all that is information will be on the show notes page, so be sure to check out the show notes. We'd also really appreciate your help in getting the word out about this podcast. The best way to do that is to talk to your friends about the podcast and encourage them to listen. Other ways are through social media. Please share the podcast, rate it positively, favorite it, and write a good review. All that said, thanks for listening, and let's get to it. Today's episode, Josh talks with Damian Sherwood. He is one of the main reporters, journalists of our local newspaper, the Cottage Grove Sentinel. Josh, you want to talk a little bit about uh, this episode? We wanted to interview him because it's uh, one of the few organs, one of the few reflections the community gets in it of itself through this weekly paper. And Damian has a, a key voice on it and one of the lead contributors uh, of the paper, and particularly the front page section. Uh, also, just doing the interview really got me thinking about what is the role of local media and what is it like uh, to be on um, a moving train and, um, you know, he tries to be neutral on the moving train of our society, you know, he tries to really get rid of bias, as he puts it. And so that that is something I hold in my mind as I listen to this and really just think about this role of local media as um, one of the few people, like he says, who else is going to show up to all those damn meetings um, and, and report on them. So, Well, it's also an interesting episode because print media is struggling right now in a major way as the digital media landscape grows, as there's more and more uh, you know, online sources, whether it's YouTube channels or, of reporting or just anybody that kind of can reach people. Um, so it is sort of a interesting um, dynamic to see him explain how uh, things are going right now with print media, how things are going with our local newspaper, as well as just the background of sort of the architecture of the ownership of our local paper and his um, how he operates uh, within all of that. So. Um, and his background story of who he is and what his life experiences is. I was definitely um, really enjoyed that part because I've had, um, I've definitely interacted with Damien in the climate action work that I've been doing. And um, yeah, it's just good to know more about our local uh, people. Yeah, one of the other things that comes up here is a topic that's just really in the zeitgeist uh, right now. Recently, Twitter has posted um has kind of fact checked it plays the role somewhat of fact checking or minimally uh 
changed it, you know, posted with Trump's comment and said, you know, gave a little. Oh, fact checks on things that right. Trump tweets. Like, it's, is this uh, is this real or not? Because all these people listen to the president of the United States and take anything he says is sac- sacrosanct. Is that the right word? <laughs> sure. And okay. then and Facebook Zuckerberg saying he will not do that at all. His position is pure. Um unmediated expression that, that Facebook should not have any role in, you know, determining the truth kind of thing. And so there's different opinions on this, right? And so now Damien has an opinion about his role as a journalist in the Sentinel and what the role of a newspaper should have in, in truth and accuracy and all that kind of stuff. Right. As we see with fast moving train of politics and all the stuff that's going on right now, a lot of misinformation can get spread around and not get fact-checked and not get looked into. Um, and I think that uh, Damien sort of really uh, takes pride in, in checking. And and we know with small town living, rumors can fly, a lot of things, you know, people can take positions before all the information's out. So um, I think it's also a good check-in on uh, how we process the happenings sure. around town and around our bigger world. So, should we listen? All right, enjoy. Joining Encounter Cottage Grove episode something. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, We're sitting out in uh, Coiner Park. It's a beautiful day. Uh, Despite the chaos around us, this is a very relaxing little spot. Moment of peace. Okay, so I want to start just by asking you to introduce yourself. Tell us about about yourself, but also in particular... um, kind of how you got into journalism and how you came to this area and working at the Sentinel. Well, um, I was born in Lane County, north of Florence on the 101. Um, you can actually see it. There's a there's an A-frame house on the way to Yahads. And uh, my parents were living in a trailer up there mm-hmm. on the hill uh, while my dad was helping build the house. And so I was born there in that trailer overlooking the sea. And uh, I grew up in Florence, so similar sized town to Cottage Grove, actually. Um, went to the U of O uh, for journalism. Um, got a degree in that. Also got a degree in political science, accidentally. It was just a hobby at the time. But... You were just taking those classes and picked up the degree. Yeah, well, I was interested in philosophy and um, politics, and especially I got turned on to um, Greek history and kind of the beginnings of democracy in Athens. And and then um, after that, um, I was in Portland for a bit and with no future in sight. I mean, it was actually pretty hard to get a journalism job at the time, especially like something entry level with no experience. I had some internship experience with the Tri-County News in Junction City, but... um, it was pretty tough. I was just catering. And I eventually just, uh, <laughs> I was homeless by choice. I threw everything I had out onto the street with a free stuff sign next to it. I just had a motorcycle and a sleeping bag <laughs> and a guitar. Okay. <laughs> and so for a good amount of time there, I was homeless up in Portland. I, I did it to kind of push myself into a corner to force myself to do something, to act. So trying to be a journalist, you ended up homeless. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> <In> short. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I gave up on the journalism thing after, like, God, 
I don't know how many uh, uh, resumes I sent out, just all over the place, all over the, the region, really, in Washington. I had one interview that I nearly got, but the other guy, the last guy had uh, more, he had like a year and a half experience already, and I had basically nothing. So. But you did break in eventually, because when I look at the front pages of the Cottage Grove Sentinel, it's uh, your name right on all the articles or almost all well i kind of had to uh go around the world in order to end up back here so i i actually learned about a possibility of getting a teaching job uh, english teaching job in south korea so i took off there um i spent 10 years there teaching english wow and um most of it, nine of those years were spent in Seoul, in the capital city, so metropolitan area. It's like 11 million people there. Um, so by the time I was ready to leave and I was kind of burnt out on teaching because it became a bit routine, um, I had gotten married and uh, my wife and I, I convinced my wife to come back here to Oregon. And she had visited once before and she liked the environment. Hmm. So we came back and a little unsure with what we were gonna do, but um, I came back to Florence and, you know, after living in those metropolitan areas for so long, it was actually kind of nice to come back to a place that slowed down. Mm. And I, I started getting a lot more interested in what you can do in a community, like how a small drop can have a, an effective ripple throughout. Um, a small cohort, cohort of, of society. And so I applied for a internship at the Sayusla News. Hmm. Um, the editor there is Ned Hickson. He's also the managing editor of The Sentinel. So they're, they're owned by the same publisher. So sort of sister papers. And, that, mm. and so um, was there something that you saw around the world or locally that made you kind of excited about this idea of well, a small drop making a big ripple? Where did that come I from? I think a lot of that just came from thinking deeply about meaning and purpose. So um, I'm kind of a philosophy buff. I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in it. I'm definitely an armchair philosopher in that sense. But I like, I like the idea of thinking about how to think about things because it doesn't really it's not necessary for us to take a college course or get a degree to have access to these tools. It's something that we all have in front of us that we can perceive things depending on um, our own choices. And that's an area where we have agency. And agency is actually a really huge bit of that quest for meaning that I think a lot of us have. So in that search for agency, I thought it became clear that um, I, I was pretty used to the anonymity of metropolitan areas by that point, by the time I came back. And it, that anonymity, anonymity and that, um, that sort of just, I, I felt like a, an apparition most of the time. I was walking around. I don't feel like I have much of an impact other than, you know, obviously on my students that there is a great reward in watching them get better. But um, I think I wanted to have more tangible change on, a, on the people around me. And so coming back to the States, it just seemed like the natural place to go would be to get 
back into journalism and do something that can help inform and help create utility and identity for small communities. In effect, doing what I've been thinking about for a long time is, is, is create meaning. So in a way, you're trying to tease out here some of your ideals of journalism because it's a professional trade. There's sort of values in the trade that are sure. that you've been trained in, but also that you've kind of come to yourself. Mm. Uh, it seems like community building or some way of knowing or way of uh, thinking about things that you're... That I'm trying to get at what yeah. are your... Do you have a set of values or a set of things that you feel like underlie your journalistic... Uh, career endeavors or yeah and actually I think one way to start on that would be to draw a distinction between what it means to be a journalist at the national level and a journalist at a community level it might be the same genus but it's definitely a different species so on the national level I think there's a lot more of a tendency to ride certain narratives to be um there are all kind of influences that, that come in to dictate sort of how you're supposed to write, what you're supposed to write. There's a lot more gatekeeping at that level, I feel. Mm. And um, at the community level, I mean, the we're owned by a corporation called News Media Corporation, but I haven't, I think I've interacted with them once because of healthcare, just getting my, my insurance. And they're based in but, Chicago, is that right? Uh, Illinois. Okay, somewhere yeah, in Illinois. Yeah, uh, uh, Rochelle. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I don't feel that influence at all. Pretty much everything that we do here, uh, everything we did in Sayusala News, and then, um, so just to finish up the story, I, I interned there and then for a year at the Sayusala News and then came over here to Cottage Grove when uh, the position opened up uh, in 2019, January. Okay. So it's just it's been over just over a year. The editorial decisions that are made at this level are like I don't feel a single bit of influence from anyone other than what happens in our own internal discussions and story meetings. And one of the nice things I like about uh, my editor I have right now, Ned, there's not a single thing that I disagree with him on when it comes to the philosophy of journalism, when it comes to how we ought to approach certain stories. Um, I think we've made really good decisions on uh, our approaches to some of the harder stories. And What do you mean? What do you mean when you say approaches to stories? Because, I mean, I think for consumers of media, that's, you know, we have a sense that, you know, the people who make the stories are deciding things behind deciding about framing them but is there mm. like a particular story maybe you could even give us an example of sure they, uh, it could have been expressed that way and you decided to express it this way I think the one I'm most proud of is actually I mean it's an unfortunate case and so I, I hate it's kind of bittersweet that I would feel proud of it but it was the hazing situation last fall mm. in the high school there was a lot of misinformation coming out we had actually been sitting on the story for I think two weeks and we're getting ready to print it because mm. um, we had just about gathered as much information as we could um, verify. And then KEZI came out with a, a family member making some claims that turned out, as far as we could tell, not to be true. And that added another, I think, another week of, of chaos of me trying to... And then all these rumors started coming out. 
and I had to dispel every single rumor along the way. So in terms of choices, our approach was don't... Let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. So this is at the high school. Yeah, Just yeah. to kind of give a little bit of background, this is at the high school. Yeah. There was a case of hazing. Yeah. And that's a light word to put on it. Oh, I should probably clarify what that situation was. So yes, there was a case where a, um, a high school junior uh, on the football team was... Um, the, the official legal term for it was harassment. Yeah. Um, he was harassed by... Uh, some seniors on the team. The actual act was to simulate um, rape, essentially, by taking a broom handle and pretending to push it up his rectum. But apparently he was clothed the whole time, or at least was wearing his football uh, girdle. And, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily make it that much better. It's obviously still a traumatic event, but a lot of people, like I had to read a lot of law to make sure everything was being done correctly, and it's not sexual assault. I know that word was, that term was thrown around a lot, so part of the article was actually clarifying that. So when I'm talking about approach, it wasn't, we weren't putting out an article simply to sensationalize this situation that happened, although there are certain media sources that would and kind of did, I think, to a degree. And, and of course, Facebook, too, was just blowing up with rumors. So my job was essentially to catalog those rumors um, and verify every single one and give importance to the ones that had seemed to risen to the top and include those in the article. And that included multiple meetings with uh, the school and with uh, the police. Um, the Department of uh, Youth Services, I believe is the term for it, in the county wasn't too helpful, obviously, because it involves minors. So we couldn't verify much there, but um, we spent a lot of time making sure that every, every sentence in that story was correct. And if, it, if we couldn't verify something to whatever degree, mm. that caveat was put in. So now in the media age of social media and whatnot, the people can say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And you are trying to uphold the truth element right. of journalism with the media. Because and it's not just the truth. Here's one problem I think people have with the concept of truth is we, people feel like they have access to that objectivity. And one thing we don't realize is that we have a pretty horrible sense of reality. I mean, we're, we're, it's easy to have bias. It's easy to fool ourselves. The best we can do is adopt a good epistemology, which is the philosophy of, of how we come to knowledge. Uh, so a, a method of coming to, as close as we can to truth. So I've stopped using the word truth when we're talking about journalism, and I say accuracy and clarity and context. Mm which seems to be the more honest approach because I think we have to be also honest with ourselves whenever we come to conclusions about things that our certainty can't be 100% on anything. I just want to be clear about what your sources are and where you got your information so people can know and make their own decisions about what's... Right, so, I need, so it, a lot of it is discernment in that area of, of saying how much to say and how positively to say it. And giving people the tools to make their own decisions. 
So utility is a really huge part, I think, of media. And it's community news, I think, that's really the last bastion of that sense-making apparatus in our country. So I want to get into this a little bit. Yeah. So we got a little bit of a sense of where you, how you've ended up here and how uh, this sort of the journey and, um, and journalism and how it's been a tough um, field to go into that has high ideals and that you're trying to actually stick to them when a lot of the media <laughs> doesn't always stick to them, particularly you're pointing to the national media. Mm. Um, so could you give us, you know, you've you've gotten this background, maybe a little bit, a canned history of what's happened. I mean, I've seen online this thing where one media corporation owns hundreds of conglomerates and they're yeah. all being scripted to say the exact same thing at the exact Mm. word for word yep. to give a certain propaganda line that's given by the very top which is basically to say the richest <laughs> element of society to serve their interests right. and uh, the idea of manufacturing consent is over almost a hundred years old where people are um, the media corporation supposed to be this independent state and society is actually being owned by the wealthiest and so they're supporting all the US wars abroad they're mm. supporting um, everything that is um, sort of funneling money upward which is sort of current economic system and mm -hmm. so there's a whole apparatus moving in one direction and um, but it's it's not been monolithic it's been changing over time and right. um, I know you've recently or you know the, the paper has recently made it clear that with the coronavirus pandemic the paper has been struggling a little bit and it's mm -hmm. very dependent on advertisers so uh, could you give us a sense of like maybe pointing particularly about local media and where that is and how uh, the struggles that it's had over the past couple decades and how that's been affected in the past couple months? Sure. Well, let me reference what you had just talked about there about national media and the, the bias and the influence and what we might term fake news these days. There, there really is a decoupling between community news and the more mainstream media that you see. Um, I hate the term fake news because it's been it's now used as a way of saying I don't like this news therefore I'll invalidate it with saying it's not real hmm. but there really are dimensions of fake news such as you're saying um, writing a narrative uh, there's actual bi bad faith bias in in the news uh, but that being said there's also this decline in quality of news in general because right. of um, a precipitous loss in uh, sales, revenue, circulation all across media of all mediums. I mean, we are seeing like, we have seen digital journals, of course, go up since the rise of that industry, but it has not in, it hasn't even come close to offsetting the amount of journalists we've lost. Like in just in newspapers in the last 10 years, I think about 10 years ago, there were just over 70,000, 71,000 newspaper reporters. Latest number I've seen is uh, 33,000. So it's a loss by more than 50% yeah. of the news. If those numbers are right, yeah. Uh, and that's, when, that's from what period to what period, roughly? That I'm would guessing? be just in the last 10 years. But okay. the actual drop started right after the turn of the millennium. Okay. Um, 2005 is when most people placed the, the, the cliff. And that's actually right when I graduated from university, so great timing. Um, so 
that that's been a drop in sales it's been a drop in reporters it's been a drop in also quality because we just can't hire enough people to do the kind of fact checking we need done but again so we're looking at two different species there's national and well let's focus on local because okay. we could critique national but that would be for another day there is one more tie into that though i want to make clear and it's the distinction we should make so i hear a bit of cheering about uh media and this is mostly from the right i think but there seems to be a a um a point of or a sentiment of joy that's coming out of the idea that media is failing and the leftist elitists are losing their their power um the the newspapers the local newspapers are dropping with that Mm -hmm. now we're seeing a lot of the major newspapers um bought up or completely disappearing and evaporating community news is doing that too but not at the same rate and i think what that tells us is that people in their quest for community in their quest for meaning and purpose are turning more to their local newspapers for the news that's actually relevant to them now we've definitely gotten taken a hit uh i don't know the numbers um but we recently started a uh, donation drive and we only got about 50 percent of our goal um unfortunately and so when you say taking a hit you mean recently you mean with the virus i mean i took a yeah with the with the virus um so we're in what's today um may late may yeah and um we what we shut down March 23rd. So yeah, um, just in that short time, we've seen all of our advert, a lot of our advertising dry up, and um, we took a 10% paycheck cut across the board. And you're working more. And I had to work harder. Yeah, because I had to cover state and county as well to to make sure that we're up on the latest. Um, but they got payment protection. Uh, they got the P- yeah from the CARES Act. There's the PPP. So that goes to the corporation Illinois in Illinois that it initially funneled to. Yeah, um, I, I I don't know exactly how they're using it, but I we got we now have our regular paychecks again, so I figure. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, they they did they did that to everyone. So just to be clear, News Media Corporation is this family-owned business. Actually, it hmm. started in '75, I think, and um, they specialize in publishing for small community papers. I think the biggest city they publish a paper for is like 50,000. And so how many, do you have a sense? Do they own many small town papers? About 62, I think, is the latest number. Yeah. And so but, they, there's mm-hmm. many small town papers that are b- private businesses, but they own all of them and mm-hmm. um, and own all of them. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm just trying to yeah. think of what their purpose is. I mean, because like as an entity... Well, each one of these is an individual paper, and then they you know become yeah. the, the Barnes & Noble or now yeah, yeah, yeah. the Amazon, you know, this, the bigger and bigger fish. Right. They've eaten up 62 little fish. This is your employer. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to right now. I don't mean, I don't have anything <laughs> bad to say anything about them. Like I said, I have no interaction with them. Yeah. Except for healthcare. And the, so what I was going to say was, um, actually, this is my suspicion about yeah. the, the reason it works this way, is, is that small town paper, our healthcare system is set up so that it's right. tied to jobs. Small papers as they have lost revenue, as things have gotten worse and worse and things move more digital, the, actual, the community papers have actually been the slowest to pick up on that. And it's so they can't really take the hit that they've been taking right. and on top of that provide health care coverage for their employees. 
So it, this is just my suspicion. Right. Uh, that this is a big factor sure. in why we need uh, bigger companies to handle that. And that, that's really the only interaction. Because we have employer-based employer healthcare. Yeah. If, and if we, if we have an, in an alternative universe, if we had <laughs> Medicare covered by yeah. the government like many other countries, around the world that would not would be a non-issue. I would go ahead and make the <laughs> argument that if we had healthcare, universal healthcare covered. I live in Korea for 10 years. They have universal healthcare. You can totally have a full-on capitalist system with universal healthcare. It works. And um, I just want to go on the record as saying Americans do not know how bad they have it. Like, mm -hmm. since I've come back, I am appalled. My wife is Korean. She She's ready to move back to Korea. She yeah. Just for the healthcare system alone. Yeah. It's so bad. Um, so, just for the record, yeah, Americans no, don't know how bad it is. Um, but it's my suspicion that if we actually improved the healthcare situation, where it became at least something approximating universal healthcare, we'd actually have better news. We'd actually have more freedom of for, I mean, if you want better news, if people are complaining about the state of media, yeah. the answer is to give them more money. Right. I know that seems counterintuitive, intuitive, but really, if, if they have more money to hire better journalists and create better quality content... Well, even the way you just described the, the, the story of the hazing, it was like you actually had to put a ton of time into that. Oh, and I, so I had you, a, like a two-week de-stress de period. Where, yeah, afterwards. It, yeah, it was intense. Yeah, I put a lot of effort into and, it. So in order to investigate something, it needs to have people being on payroll investigating. This yeah. is part of the game. And, and, and the thing is, we're working with a skeleton crew. If we lose one person, that that's paper a, can't function. That's what I always wonder about the Sentinel. I look yeah. at it and I see one author. And then I flip a few pages and I see another author. Yeah. And then I see the same first author again. You know, it's, there's very few con, uh, contributing. I mean, not there's not two, but there's very few. We have a couple stringers, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm writing all the stories. Nick our, Nick Snyder, our, our sports editor, also covers education. Mm. Sometimes I cover education, too. Um, lately, during the pandemic, though, it's been so much to cover. We've actually been co-opting uh, the Sagasla the News uh, team, and they've been... So sometimes I'll write something that's like, county news mm. and they'll take it to the Sagasla news or sometimes they'll write something county and we'll take it over Got here it. and that's helped a lot but, so but man I don't know how we could do it without that help here's something I really wanted to ask you because when I saw the paper like as the the pandemic was becoming kind of front and center in everyone's consciousness yeah. and it was like the front page all of a sudden was talking about the governor and it was talking about national issues mm -hmm. and I thought wow this is so interesting this is the local paper I always hearing about the lost dogs and mm. the the the, um, the local issues here mm. um, and all of a sudden I'm getting way more information about uh, national and state well we didn't go national we, we kept it more we went, we went we went to state we, so we, we I covered you know I just had to listen to all the press briefings that the, the, the governor gave or the um, the county gave and it was mainly because all events shut down there was actually no news to cover except you know I, I went around to some businesses and I tried to cover how they were dealing with things and gave that sort of local angle as best I could but it kept changing day to day I, I, I had um, so many stories built up like let's explore it from this angle from this angle and then that would change and I like every day another story would fall through yeah. and I have like hours of interviews I'm just never going to use right and so it's so much wasted effort I mean I wouldn't call it wasted because it it keys me into how things have been progressing yeah. but 
uh, a lot of effort that never makes it to print. There's no end product to it other than giving me perspective. Is it fair to say that the reason you're covering Governor Brown's edicts and mm. press briefings and whatnot was because it was affecting yeah. local? Yeah, and it's, it wasn't necessarily because there was a lack of news locally, although that did play into it. But, yeah, anytime there's a, a state of emergency and then an executive order that come down that affects every single business in town, right. that's that's going to have to... It's hard to cover local news, stay local, when the, when the executive order is coming from a non-local place. Yeah. So that's the that's a sort of thing I just wanted to kind of go into a little bit deeper is how do you decide what non-local events are affecting local because this is obviously mm. an extreme one you get an executive order you got to shut down all businesses sure. but what if for instance there's something that's happening that's changing our climate okay right because um, you did cover a little bit about I covered emergency the, preparedness, but and you covered the climate march. Yeah. But like, for instance, someone I know might be thinking, like, are the rainfall we get, the sun we get, the the day to day existence of our lives right now is affected by these global, uh, economic and political decisions. And so then, how do we? It's, you know, it's one of those things. How do we differentiate? I. Th- I think the main thing there, if we're talking about climate change and how it impacts a community, we need something measurable. We need something tangible that we can say, like like data points, Mm -hmm. and and saying something a little bit more than anecdote um, to say, here's what's happening, here's why we should be concerned. Um, With the the fires, you know, the fire that happened and the the, um, natural disasters that came about... um, and I, like I said, like you said, I did that. Oh God, I had my first panic attack doing this. Actually, a three-part emergency preparedness series. <laughs> it was end-to-end interviews every day, all week, seven days a week, and then transcribing those interviews. It was insane. I'm glad I, I did it, but I don't know if anyone even read it. Uh, apparently, you did. <laughs> um, but in there, I tried to go into. Yeah, I got uh, someone from the fire service to talk a bit about climate change, and you know, obviously things are heating up, and all. And he pointed me actually to some really good data that I got to use in that article. So that's an example of where I would start talking about it more locally is when I actually have something um, more data based to I prove it. To. All right, because someone might say like, "Look, you know, the U.S. spends the U.S. federal government spends X billion dollars mm. of X percentage of its federal bu- government mm. uh, budget towards." Uh, war, yeah. military armaments towards uh, black sites, torture bases, um, uh, forever wars in the Middle East, mm-hmm. or whatever, however else we can describe it. Um, and then they say they don't have enough money to pay for um, medical care, mm-hmm. um, you know, universal medical care. Mm-hmm. And so this, then people in our community are feeling like they want to go to the doctor but they can't because they don't have enough money mm-hmm. I and mean, this is a common story we live in sure. a place where you know poverty is a real issue and people can't go to the doctor but there's this national um you know dilemma here where they're not paying for one thing partly because they're paying for this other thing um it becomes i'm wondering how you know if you draw the line and say well i'm only going to cover the local and um, how does one, um, you know, is, is it, 
here's my here's my tough question. For I think you. I know where you're is going. Is it hiding yeah. something to um, to to have this sort of local national divide? Right. That's my. That's, that's well, here's the way I feel about all statements and all articles: is that they're all in to some degree a lie by, by omission. It's and this is why I say we should get away from the word truth and more towards the word accuracy and talk about context and clarity. So my question every time I'm putting something out is is this useful? Does it have utility? Yeah. Does it serve the teleology of the newspaper, which is, means it's its purpose. If this is to be a apparatus that is uh, intended to make sense of things and to create a public record and to tell the story of a community in what ways is it fulfilling the different dimensions that of, of news that might go into that when it comes to broader topics yeah I think there's real good discussion to be had about what the discerning line is between you know something as global as climate change um, affecting a small town um, where, where we draw that line but I think there's there's also, like I said, there's a teleology to a newspaper, mm -hmm. and there's a reason people pick it up. For a national newspaper, people are going to pick it up in order to get a, a broader perspective on their society and, and possibly culture. And when it comes to a community newspaper, they're picking it, I think they're picking it up anyway, to... Um, like I said, achieve, get somewhere closer to on this quest for community where they're able to establish identity, mm -hmm. um, find agency in their own community, right. and derive meaning from that. And also just feel informed in a way where they, they can pick it up and they feel like after reading, going through the whole paper, they're like, yeah, I, I might actually change the way I do something in my life. Um, in my community, I might join that, um, you know, civic group that was mentioned here, or whatever it is. And there's so much to parse out in a small community that to start expanding it will eventually dilute a bit of that um, that that meaning that you can give a, a community. So it's not to say that we can't expand. It's just it's going to be just because of pure bandwidth issues. Um, my own bandwidth, our, our physical bandwidth of, of the paper space, and also people's attention. Um, there's going to be a dilution of the things we're trying to focus on. And I think it's important to delineate between community and national because we're serving a purpose that can't be served by any of those other papers. We are the only ones. We're the last line of defense when it comes to community organization or community whatever. If that We'll use climate change again. If that involves a climate change uh, um, story, it's going to have to focus on a group that's actually doing it, sure. that's doing something um, in the community, rather than getting into the... I mean, if you wanted me to write on climate change, I'm pretty sure I could just make my own newsletter about it because there's so much information out there. Because it's not just the data that's out there. Uh, there's the controversy, and that's worth exploring. So, well, let me just say what you. I mean, um, I would humbly say about the Encounter Cottage Grove podcast that we share a similar mission mm. in terms of um, 
connecting people locally. Yeah. And um, and I think, and the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I think the Sentinel is uh, one of these important um, institutions of of the community. Right. Yeah. And me too. I, I, you know, we spoke to Scott at the farm stand and some other folks, and we're Samantha Duncan, and so really trying to touch base with the people that are, you know, part of the glue of this of this community. And that's another thing, actually, I want to say about Cottage Grove, especially. You know, I, from Florence, when I grew up there, and even when I went back to intern for a year at the Sayuslaw News, um, I never really got the sense that there was a, a tight-knit community. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, if anything, it's a bit divided politically, strangely enough, even in their city council, which it didn't used to be, but just recently that's happened. I came to Cottage Grove, and I found that this is the kind of place where if someone puts their shoulder to a wheel, people tend to rally, and they tend to reward good behavior or or progressive or proactive behavior, and um, I I feel like there's something in the water here. There's something unique about this community. I don't know if you've ever lived in any other small towns before, but... It's definitely different. There's a community feel in Cottage Grove that I think is unique, that, mm. you're, that you've just put your finger on. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there are different interests. Of course. And um, it must be a complex thing to navigate. One of the things I read about in terms of local news is when local news goes under, which mm. has been happening so much, as you've talked about, around the country and perhaps around the world, um, and places, you know, I just saw the other day, the Atlantic uh, magazine just fired 68 people. People are just mm-hmm. downsizing, over making people work more and pay less. Again, the bigger the bigger institutions are, are going down, but the smaller ones, like I said, are not falling at the same rate, but still falling. Okay. Yeah. So they're falling, but yeah. not as fast. <laughs> right, right. And over the course of decades. And they tend to get bought up, by the way, like... Um, when they get bought up, they tend to survive. Whereas with the bigger ones, when you see them merge or you see, there's, I can't remember which ones right now, but there are a lot of stories out there of some really big, like, legacy newspapers buying each other or chains buying each other, and then everything just just dropping, like their stocks dropping like 98% or something. So yeah, that is not happening as 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 much in the community news. So in other communities where this unfortunately has happened, they've lost their local paper. It's yeah. been totally uh, downsized um, or you know tightened. The belt's been tightened, as we've mm-hmm. heard a little bit about in your stay. But even before, I know stories of past editors and past contributors who felt burnt out by the amount of uh, work that's been put on your desk. Yeah, and. Um, is that one of the casualties of this economic situation is that the local government and some of the people with more power locally feel like no one's watching them if there's no newspaper. Mm-hmm. They feel like they can get away with a little bit more. And I think there was some data out there showing how local corruption goes up in a direct mm. Uh, a direct relationship with the loss of a paper. For sure. I mean, who else is going to go to those executive sessions? Uh, I want to wind down with asking you this kind of final question. Mm. Like, so we've heard a little bit about your journey, the ideals of journalism, the realities of journalism, uh, cottage, the situation here in Cottage Grove, and I just maybe, you know, you talked about citizenship, well, you didn't talk, you talked about Greek democracy. It made, yeah. me, it made me think about the ideal of citizenship and being mm. an active participant. Male landowners. That's true at the time, that's <laughs> yeah. what it was. It's not what it is today. Yeah. Um, 
And it is um, the sort of body politic that's made up of active uh, participants and informed participants, I suppose this is what yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to elicit from you some sense of uh, a sort of highfalutin um, theory on, on, on your purpose here mm. and, um, and what you're going for, because I know you express interest in public forums yeah. and there's something about engagement or yeah. revealing of accuracy, truth, that you're trying to... So I've actually been thinking about this and my, my opinion on it's changed somewhat lately. So, you know, written into, maybe this was mainly written into the, like the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers and um, just when there's a lot of debate going on about what kind of government we should have, there's a lot of talk about the term energetic government or energetic society mm. and or an energetic populace. I'm not sure of the noun, but they use the word energetic a lot. And the idea is that there's a lot of participation by the populace in in the well, I mean politics is essentially just the study of the relationship between government and people. And so having political engagement basically means to go to city council meetings, to start your own civic groups, try to get policy changed. There's a lot of ways to do that. And of course, vote. Um, but I've been thinking recently, is that actually the, the bedrock that we need? Do we need more energetic uh, communities, more energetic populace? Or do we need something deeper than that to change. Well, people don't actually know when to engage or where to enter the process in order to be effective, to have that agency that I'm trying to give people. And so it struck me that maybe we need to start doing some forums where we talk about, if you want to get something done, how do you get something done? And it's like, where do you need to show up? When is the right time? There's a lot of this process it's not completely clear like I feel like I've been going through a master's course on it just because I have to report on it. I didn't know any of this before mm-hmm. I, I uh, started it in, in the Sayuslan News um, there are a lot of little details at work in this machine and it's sort of esoteric to a lot of the, the populace so I just wanted to educate people on that but I've been thinking you know, there are certain people in society I don't want to engage. I don't want them engaging. I don't feel like they're well-informed enough to, to make the right decisions, to vote in, the, in their best interests, to, um, you know, this is why I'm against mandatory voting, um, or to um, engage in a way that's helpful. I mean, it's possible to be regressive in, in your engagement. And so I don't know if telling people to engage more would actually result in some regressive policies or in that kind of regression. But it's enough of a worry that I think we need to start with having sense-making apparatus within our community, and that starts with local media. But it also starts with having a, a, a government that is uh, open to, you know, transparent, and having institutions that we can trust. It, it means me making an institution that we can trust. So that's on me as well. It also means in having better conversations, and this is something that we've talked about before, right? Is that we have a tendency to divide topics into good and evil. And there's not nuance in a lot of these conversations. And the idea is if someone disagrees with me, it must be because they're stupid or bad. 
and um, I think people should actually seek out a, uh, not just conversation but dialectic move in a way where you have a synthesis or sorry you have a thesis antithesis and a synthesis at the end but that is what the basis of dialectic is in, a, in, in conversation is you have a dialogue and from the end of in the end of that you get something that approximates the truth of the situation or, or what might be useful to know in that situation and I think people need to have a lot less certainty about what they think they know about the world and actively engage the, the possibility that they're wrong and they could learn something from other people. And I see this as being particularly important on, on topics like climate change. Like to me, climate change is just a no-brainer. Like it's, it's actually really hard to argue against and yet it has, especially in the U.S., and this is actually, uh, I think the Republican Party is the only political party in the major political party in the world mm. that's actually uh, has a policy against it or denies it in any way. So, I mean, I think people need to realize that we're kind of unique in the U.S. We have something in our DNA that that's, uh, we have a history of, of really great debate. I mean, our founders were children of the Enlightenment. But I think we've lost a lot of that. Um, and we, we're not having the conversations that we could have by losing a little bit of this arrogance of, of rejection of authority figures and not wanting to be told what to do. And instead, engaging in value-based conversations and um, establishing our own priors based off of critical thinking. Um, I mean, this is all very broad. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of question. philosophical, but... And, I, and actually, I don't know what the mechanism is in order to get there. I'm not quite sure. Other than what I do in um, the newspaper, I'm trying to provide a model for how we ought to think about things and how we ought to talk about things. And... That, so it's really important to me that I don't inject any of my own bias. It's an open-mindedness. That you're an open-minded search for truth. I'm going to use it. Sure. And that you are trying to model as writer, editor. But we also can't be so open-minded that our brains fall out. Right. Like, we have to have... We all, discernment is an important skill. Sure. It's, I, I don't know if I can place enough emphasis on it because it's not talked about enough. But the ability to discern among the different elements of our lives that we inject energy into, that we waste calories on, um, is a, a pretty important skill to have, I think. And that really comes down to where we place value on certain ideas, and especially being able to recognize ideas that are really meaningful to us and ask ourselves why are they meaningful to us. So that critical thinking, I think, is something that needs to be... It starts, I think, at the education level, which is another region for education reform. It's another institution that's failed us. So, I mean, what we're pretty much talking about connects to every aspect of our society. And so it's, it's quite a large conversation to have. Yeah. But, and, and it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And in, in fact, it's the, part of the reason I think people feel alienated. Um, and there's a lot of cynicism. 
In fact, which I understand completely. I think if people weren't cynical or if they didn't feel alienated, um, someone should feel guilty that they, they pulled off the greatest ruse <laughs> in history because it's, it's clearly a, a messed up situation. Um, but in order to mitigate that to some degree at the local level, we do have our, our tools at hand. And one of those is, in my case, obviously, the, the media, which I feel is really important in creating that, 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 um, that sense-making grounding that is very difficult to latch on to these days. Hmm. Sort of public sphere. Looking for a public sphere that is... I'm also... I'm trying to just put my words onto it, and I want to know if they land, but a public sphere that is has a rational debate. Yeah. Or rational search. Yeah. um, That is open, but it's... It sticks to a kind of reasoned logic that can lead it. And that's why I wanted... Pu- you're, this is pure enlightenment. You're going for it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think we need to bring back the enlightenment. Um, but this is another reason why I wanted to do forums, and we'll, we'll mm-hmm. see whenever... I don't know when that's ever going to open right. up again, but um, I, I actually got a number of people on board with it, uh, with the city. I just was pitching it as a brainstorm idea. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, a number of people are really interested in... Uh, but, you know, it all depended on what the format would be. You know, we don't want to make it a, 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 a grievance party or a, um, a soapbox for anybody. I mean, the, the whole point is, like I said, dialectic. And so what are the what is the format for that? Um, what are the tools we can use in order to get closer to a dialectic? I don't exactly know, mm-hmm. but it, I, it's something that I want to crowdsource because I'm sure I'm not the only one with... Uh, these ideas and I'm sure I don't have the solutions completely so Damien thank you for taking the time to chat thank you for bringing your professionalism to the Cottage Grove Sentinel yeah and um, I hope we can continue this conversation and we'll put um, some of your info on the show notes so that people can mm-hmm. can follow up with you and um, and of course with us at EncounterCG at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts uh, about this. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right.
Music, as always, is by Marco Benevento and Richard Swift. See you next time.